and welcome to another edition of the Curzon Film Podcast. Uh, this week we've put on our bulletproof vest to talk about Ben Wheatley's new film, Free Fire. And as well as firing our usual film discussion, we've got lots more in the chamber for this special show. And joining me to help pick up the debris from Fire and put it back together is Lawrence Jackson, MA Film Practice Lecturer at the University of Kent. Our very own Sam Howlett also spoke to Ben Wheatley, the director of the film, about the new picture. And we'll be broadcasting that conversation shortly. And finally, Free Fire is not actually the only film out this week. Uh, Christian Munzu, who you may know as the director of the Palm Door winning Four Months, Three Weeks and Two Days, returns with a new film called Graduation. And we were lucky enough to sit down to speak to him about that film too. So it is a ginormous episode of the Curzon Film Podcast this week. But before we do our regular podcast pitch to begin the show, some introductions are in order. Lawrence, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, Lawrence, uh, Ben Wheatley has become a heavily dropped name in your filmmaking classes. Uh, when did you first come across him and uh, what did you see in his work that made you want to share it with all your students? Well, the first time was uh, in 2011 when Kill List came out. And that was when he started to get more attention. And I watched Down, Down Terrace, which was uh, 2009, and marketed. If you see the uh, cover of the DVD, it looks like a kind of post-lockstock um, Brit gangster film, which uh, which it really isn't. You know, it's it's something different from that. So since then, I've followed his films, Sightseers, A Field in England, High Rise, and now Free Fire. And he's made six films in eight years, uh, which is pretty impressive by anyone's standards uh, in the States, let alone Britain, Europe. Okay, so I think he's he's just going from strength to strength yeah it's a uh, it's phenomenal achievement we were talking about Xavier Delan recently and I think he's going for the same six and eight years um, but I think there's a bit when you look at the scope of Wheatley's films and the, the breadth of it there's a, a phenomenal amount of uh, craft that he puts himself into that's just so different as well absolutely he um, I think um, hearing him interviewed uh, he doesn't intellectualize he resists uh, he's not pretentious he's incredibly straightforward that's the way he comes across and so I'm gonna be the intellectual <laughs> I'm gonna intellectualize about him I don't think he has um, yet the critical um, consideration he merits uh, and there is even a backlash against him among some certainly academics and it's to do with him it's a kind of snobbery uh, he makes popular cinema uh, but that's not the whole story uh, and so all of his films, for example, um, A Field in England, he, he referenced Onibaba, the Japanese ghost story movie, and Culloden, the Peter Watkins film from the 60s. You know, he really knows he's a cineast, but he wears it lightly. Uh, so uh, that's endearing. Yeah. Yep. And I think he, he use, uses genre to his advantage a lot of the time to then play off of that fact as well. I'm thinking of, like, particularly in Kill List, there's a lot there that... I think it might have been an interview with him where he was saying about just cut, not cutting away where he's so used to everyone else cutting away. Yeah, he's, as you see in many directors' CVs, they often come through being editors, sometimes screenwriters, sometimes actors. And uh, Wheatley, I see, with Amy Jump, his, his partner, uh, he's an editor par excellence. And so montage and um, screen space, silence... Uh, stretching the moment uh, he's he's been doing that from the start uh, but I think the, the quantum leap I believe was a field in England where he really was doing something different and it got the attention of figures like you know Nick Rogue Scorsese who exec produced um, Free Fire so um, you know it's, it's very much uh, editing is central to what he's doing and what do you take from his films that you want to instill in the students of yours I, I rather than show there's mainly British students uh, a David Lean epic or even something um, even Ken Loach or Mike Lee Stephen Frears I feel that showing them Ben Wheatley uh, many of them will think I can do that uh, I'm going to go out and do that and that's partly his philosophy uh, online you can see the um, the link to the masterclass for the making of A Field in England. Now, few filmmakers in any country go to those lengths. He's, he's a kind of secret teacher. 
I think, uh, in terms of putting it across to people, well, this is what you do, this is what's required. Uh, so demystifies the process, and that's, that's helpful to me talking to students because I can show, you know, I can break it down into components, yeah. And perhaps less so with his most recent offering. Yeah, I didn't get on with High Rise. Um, I have blamed uh, my wife that I saw it with um, at the Curzon Canterbury, wonderful cinema, but uh, we, we made it to the end. Uh, there were a couple of walkouts. Yep. I think I blame the uh, sort of double curse of uh, Jeremy Thomas and J.G. Ballard, actually. I, th- I think it's more a Jeremy Thomas film than a Ben Wheatley film for me. I could, I could bore you about that now, but uh, yeah, I think... If I can briefly say, all Wheatley's films before Free Fire are concerned with the class system to uh, some extent, the British class system. And one of the liberating things about Free Fire, which is set in Boston in the 1970s, is it's not about the class system. Um, High Rise explicitly is. Mm. It's a big metaphor for class. And I think somewhere in there, for me, um, it, it got lost. Uh, with high rise, yeah, um, I think part of part of high rise is getting lost, and you you kind of have to succumb to it. And it is, I think, it's effectively a non-narrative music video that lasts for two hours. But I yes. think a lot of people were maybe not expecting that. Yes, it, it, all are expect after a field in England, and uh, there's that overused word buzz about Ben Wheatley and his collaborators. And here comes high rise, and it's produced by Jeremy Thomas. And it looks, and Tom Hiddleston and all kinds of other wonderful actors. And uh, my expectations were huge. So I went in with uh, the wrong expectations. Mm. Uh, I think it's beautifully made uh, and some fantastic stuff in there. Um, but I, I also think J.G. Ballard is almost adaptation, adaptation proof. And um, it's uh, the, the Spielberg film, I've forgotten the name of the, the 19, 1980s adaptation of. J.G. Ballard's uh, autobiography. Oh, Empire of the Sun. Sorry, yeah, Empire of the Sun. I, I do teach film, everyone. <laughs> uh, just testing you. Um, actually, Empire of the Sun is, has a story, mm. uh, and it's Ballard's story, has a narrative, and that's one of the reasons it's the best screen adaptation of his work. And I think, um, sounding really old-fashioned here, I think High Rise is not about the story. It's about the vision. And uh, for me, it, it, it wasn't... Um, it didn't add up, but I need to see it again. Yeah, I think uh, I think Sam of this of this parish uh, said that it's very much the more you watch it, the better it gets. The more you can lose yourself into it, um, and I think if you get the chance, maybe on a bigger screen would probably help with that yeah. film. Um, and in a strange sense, it almost feels like High Rise, in a weird Ben Wheatley way, was a one for them job as well. Yes, very good point. Uh, I think I think he's a. Uh, goes back to artists like you know Rubens. Uh, you've got to think about who your patrons are, uh, and you know one for them, one for me. Uh, famously, you know Hollywood filmmakers, and recently Clint Eastwood has worked that way. Uh, and yeah, it's a very good point. And um, I, I want I wanted it to work and be wonderful. Uh, and I obviously need to see it again, and probably on my own, right? And then I'll love it. Yeah, uh, and that leads us uh, to Free Fire, which feels like very much one for him. It's even shot in his back garden, basically. This is really a 90-minute shootout set in a Boston warehouse, uh, and it's definitely his most genre-friendly film uh, with the strong 70s American influence. And so, Lawrence, returning to our regularly scheduled podcast pitch, I was wondering if you could pitch me a new American-influenced genre film, but in the hands of any, living or dead... British low-budget director, another Wheatley free fire, if you will. Well, Jake, I had two equally terrible ideas. <laughs> I'm apologising in advance. So one is uh, Shane Meadows directs um, a space opera. It's called This Is Pluto. Uh, now, with the current debate about Pluto's status as not being a, a planet anymore, it's a dwarf planet. So this is the world we're in. It's a science fiction film, but with all the regular um, Shane Meadows faces... So Thomas Togus plays the lead, and it's a coming-of-age story. He's in his 20s now, um, and uh, he's fighting for recognition of what Pluto's status is uh, in the solar system, maybe the galaxy, and he's torn between two uh, mentor figures, and one is a, a grizzled scouse space pirate, which is quite hard to say, played by Stephen Graham. Uh, and on the other side, 
a kind of um, action heroine with an eye patch. I see her played by Vicky McClure, uh, who since the replacement we know she's very good playing a villainess. Mm. Uh, and and really, it's going to be which side will he choose? And eventually, Pluto will get recognition. Um, so that's the bad one. That's the worst of the two. Okay, I would say that's the great one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. The other one, which now maybe looks, is um, uh, Joanna Hogg uh, has made you know films called Unrelated, Archipelago, Exhibition, uh, and generalising they're about um, posh people in crisis, often in um, either uh, either uh, where is it? It's uh, Tuscany or uh, the the Channel Islands. Um, no, the Scilly Isles. Excuse me. And um, this one. Her film would be called Diaspora, and it's set in 1881 Tombstone. And it's a Western, because that's the ultimate American genre. Mm. Uh, but it would be about um, transplanted immigrants uh, in the Wild West, played by Tom Hiddleston, uh, <laughs> who's a regular yep, collaborator. Yep. But it has to be about an affair with probably an older woman. Uh, so I think Helena Bonham Carter may be playing yep. a genteel... Uh, East European immigrant, maybe called Svetlana, and uh, they have an affair. And it's not about the shootout of the OK Corral, it's about the diaspora around the shootout. It's about the other people. And that's a Joanna Hogg Western, everyone. That's that's believable. Uh, that, that has the potential to actually exist. I could I could read that as a headline. I need to get a life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean it's about, I went I went down the rest Western route as well. Uh, and after so I recently rewatched Attack the Block. Uh, Joe Cornish's uh, kind of sci-fi council estate invasion film uh, from a few years ago with John Boyega, uh, and I thought we could that could definitely be a western. That's already really a western with this kind of band of outlaws who are helping the kind of small civilization in this case, just a tower block in South London. Um, but I think with westerns that have kind of dis- westerns have kind of disappeared, and they're trying to. They're re- re-entering our sphere in the form of Django Unchained or the remake of The Magnificent Seven, but the tone for me is just off. Tarantino is, I'm a bit iffy with anyway, and it's too parody And The Magnificent Seven remake was a bit too po-faced and a bit too... I didn't quite know what it needed yeah. to be. And I think Joe Cornish, like, particularly looking at Ant-Man and Tintin as well, he just like he knows the, right, the adventure spirit that is needed in a Western as Great well. Great idea. Yeah. I think I think there's some legs there, but Joe Cornish is doing nothing. Um, like he's apparently got something on the cards, but that's been I think six or seven years now, uh, and so I would like to see at least something to do with Joe Cornish. I make it sound like he's an upcomer. He's yeah. 48. Come on, Joe, do some work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> come on, lazy, come on. lazy is what it is. Um, but I think in this instance we've got to give the uh, the podcast pitch to the Joanna Hogg diaspora western, uh, which I'm sure will be popping up on comingsoon.net very very shortly yeah uh, cheers for indulging us there Lawrence my pleasure uh, and so we will now uh, cut across to Sam Howlett who is chatting to Ben Wheatley about Free Fire okay and we're now joined by the director of Free Fire Ben Wheatley Ben thanks for joining us hello hello uh, so I guess I'll just start from the beginning with my first question where did the idea for Free Fire come from and how did it come to be your sort of follow up to High Rise um, it, it come from um, uh, I've been reading um, transcripts from uh, gunfights that the FBI have been involved in, and I thought it was really fascinating. And um, and they're not at all like you would imagine from watching Hollywood movies, um, which is no great surprise, I suppose, yeah. to anyone. But it was kind of um, they're really messy and difficult and and. Uh, protracted um, and um, I thought there's something in this um, and then I was so I, had, I was thinking about that for a few years and just batting it about and then I kind of looked I, um, I met up with Killian Murphy and he was um, we had a few drinks and he was saying he wanted to you know if he ever had an idea or a part that he would be good for and I kind of thought well you know I can't let, let this go you know I need to you know I went home and thought of a, a, a thing for him straight away you know and that was that was free fire so I kind of got him and I got Michael Smiley and I started thinking about this gun battle thing and the world of a, a kind of procedural kind of um, action movie that was 
changing the scale of action back down from where we've got at the moment, which is kind of massive, yeah. um, uh, down to very small actions and what was the smallest you could get to, you know, away from when you're not when you don't have car chases, what kind of chases do you have? Sure. And, yeah. Um, and kind of worked it out from there, really. Okay. Cool. Um, so you mentioned there this kind of desire to like bring the shooter back to what it ultimately is, like, a, like a, in a sort of realist way. Um, yeah, to a degree, obviously. Yeah, obviously. It's still a movie. Yeah. And did you did you kind of shy away from things like sort of slow motion and no, we had all that slow, unrealistic elements. Well, slow motion is a is a case in point. Is it is that is actually quite realistic? Yeah. Apparently, okay. that in under incredible stress, you as you probably know from if you've been in an accident yeah. or something really um, terrible has happened to you, you can feel that time is going slower, and that is from it's a physiological thing that your brain does because it processes quicker as part of um, a survival kind of okay. thing. So people who have been in shootouts have, have described the experience of going into slow motion. Yeah. Or thinking they're just not moving fast enough, and when they, you know, they do it with training and stuff, and they play back the footage and they're moving really quick, but they feel like they're moving really slow. Um, and some people have tunnel vision, or they are they weirdly their vision will go into black and white because the brain will okay. um, take up every anything that it doesn't need, it gets rid of in, in a in a survival situation. Wow. Okay. Which I, when I was reading that, I was going, wow, that's really yeah. crazy. So <laughs> in some ways, like, you know, some of the things, the, the techniques you see in cinema are kind of quite true. Okay. And then other things aren't. So the, the kind of idea of blood gouting out of people like it does in, in, yeah. in movies or, or the, the people being flung backwards by pistol shots and stuff right. is all kind of nonsense, you know, and that's that, that had come from the, you know, the simple physics of a, of a gun firing. It can only give as much... Um, uh, it can only punch as much as the right recoil of the pistol. Okay. So, it, not much in yeah. that respect. So it doesn't really throw you backwards unless um, they were finding. I was reading reading about this that that people were were being shot and throwing themselves backwards, and um, it had been been from television. Okay. So if they knew they'd been shot, they kind of automatically yeah throw yeah. themselves to the ground. Whereas if they'd been shot and they didn't see where the bullet had come from, sometimes they wouldn't even notice it for a bit. Yeah. Okay. Okay, um, so as the film is essentially, you know, in its most basic uh, way, it's kind of ninety-minute shootout. Mm. I was wondering what are the kind of other sort of cinematic shootouts that either inspired you or that you were particularly fond of throughout cinema history. I mean, I looked at kind of you know I've I've always loved the Peck and Pass stuff and I like you know um, yeah. the Wild Bunch and the end of um, uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia and things like that. And then an extension of that is. Um, uh, the John Woo movies and uh, the, like Hard Boiled or um, The Killer or um, Better Tomorrow um, also like um, Samurai movies as well like all the Kurosawa films like sure. Seven Samurai and stuff so all that kind of goes in there into the pot but really this was I guess one of the weird influences on this is more like um, Evil Dead 2 or um, uh, Warner Brothers cartoon yeah. stuff like Tom and Jerry okay. so that and that is about kind of visual storytelling um, and uh, lots of little goals, um, visual goals that make, you know, it's, it's, it's weird with this movie when it's sold as a kind of, oh, it's just it's a gunfight that goes on for yeah. 90 minutes. But the reality of that is that you have to make, um, uh, it's a lot of story, yeah. but the story isn't necessarily plot. Okay. So it, it makes, you know, and that goes back to silent cinema, you know, and a lot of, you could you could describe a Chaplin film as just a film about a sure. tramp who gets kicked up the arse a lot, yeah. and that's <laughs> you know it's like, yeah. that would be one way of reducing it down to nothing. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned like uh, Warner Brothers cartoons because I was going to mention the kind of almost slapstick at times quality to the film. Yeah, it was intentional. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. Not much happens by accident on the film yeah. set. To be fair. Okay, so there's a lot of. I imagine there's loads of like for this film especially this sort of meticulous planning of. Each shot has to land in this place, and this actor has to fall here. And yeah. Uh, could you talk about the kind of planning that went into this film? Oh uh, yeah, it was um, it was very um, heavily storyboarded and worked out, and you just have to uh, uh, primarily for safety. You know, is one one reason because you just can't have all that yeah. stuff going on and not not knowing what's going to happen next. Someone will get hurt because it's you know it's reasonably challenging and sure. dangerous. Um, um, and then yeah, and it had to be you know some of the every bullet hit in the wall. Most of the 
you know, almost 90% of the effects were practical. So every time a bullet hits the wall, it's, you know, something that has to be planned up to six, yeah. seven weeks beforehand. So, you know, really, there was a, a lot of planning went into it. Okay. And, um, yeah, so you mentioned quite a few films earlier. So there's something kind of interesting in your films that you don't tend to, um, that I've noticed anyway, explicitly mm. reference mm. or in a kind of postmodern, ironic way. Is that something you almost try to avoid and be a sort of... Um, yeah, I don't really... In, I, I, I think that, that my experience of making movies is as um, I'm a witness to the story. And so I see it and I try, I feel, like, you know, part of my job is to create the atmosphere on set and to create an atmosphere to work in. Yeah. And then when, I, when, when the actors are doing their job and the camera is doing its job and they're creating an atmosphere uh, and then I have to kind of capture it to, to film. So to, to then pour into that mix other people's movies sure. becomes really complicated. Yeah. And I don't know, I think there's a place for that kind of filmmaking, but it was never something I was that interested in. So... Um, and to make kind of films that are kind of explicit references to other movies is something is a different type of filmmaking than, than sure, what I'm involved certainly. in. Okay, this is a big cast, and not just in terms of number, but in terms of like names. Like these are big, worldwide, rec internationally recognised names. Mm. I mean, you've worked with big names before, but this seems the most almost sort of Hollywood-friendly cast. Uh, would you maybe say that this is perhaps your most accessible film for like a mass audience? In that respect, I'd say that the casting is a similar level to High Rise. Okay. Sure. Um, I mean, Hiddleston's yeah, massive. Absolutely. You know, so yeah. He's kind of, yeah. you know, but um, and Luke Evans is massive as well, obviously. Um, uh, so I don't think it's any different in that respect. I think it's it it it's it certainly uh, a friendlier film to the audience than yeah. maybe High Rise was, you know. Okay. Um, and it meets them a bit more halfway. Yeah. But it's still quite a weird film. Certainly, yeah. Fundamentally. <laughs> but it's yeah, it feels a little bit more. I mean, it, it, it's kind of. I think it's fun, and in a way that some of the other films were a bit more. I've made are a bit more punishing, you know. Yeah. Um, which I like punishing cinema, you know. Certainly. But um. <laughs> But it's been interesting doing this tour and going to all these places and seeing the um, audience react to it, you know, and, and and coming away really liking it. Yeah, is that something you think about often, like like when you do when you film something or write something? Oh God, what are they going to think of this, or how are they going to react to that? Or yeah, that's the whole job. Yeah, you know, you think, and as the as a you know as the creator of it, you kind of are trading at every point on your own taste and going I guess I'm you know I'm the audience I'm, yeah. and, and if I like it because I like certain films I yeah. don't like other films and yeah. I have my own particular tastes and, and I have unreasonable tastes sometimes you know that yeah. don't it's not a film's fault I don't like it it's sure. some other thing outside of thing that's made that happen so and I think well you know and I try and make films I want to watch and then and then you find out you know cause yeah. sometimes they're your niche tastes are niche yeah. sometimes your kind of broader tastes are uh, are accessible so that's good yeah excellent. okay and uh, I wanted to quickly talk about as well Charlotte Copley's character mm. because he's perhaps the most eccentric and loud and broad I was wondering where that character came from um, it comes from the script and from and from working with Shalto. Okay. so he's uh, Shalto's a great improviser so he gave us loads of material yeah. but also Amy Jump uh, the screenwriter yeah. was rewriting as we shot, oh, okay. so there was a lot of stuff put back into it, uh, playing off of what Charlotte was doing, and then Amy did this really great thing with the um, ADR, the additional dialogue recording stuff, where she wrote uh, like almost another script, which was all the background yeah. dialogue that that kind of glued the whole movie together, and so that character was brought up a lot in all that dialogue, you know, and, yeah. and, and sharpened into that. So, but yeah, I mean, I thought. I like big characters like that, and, um, yeah. and I think he's really, really funny. You know, fundamentally funny, and uh, is the heart of the film for most of it. Um, but then, you know, there was some great improvisation from Army Hammer as well, okay. and obviously Smiley's always great. Yeah. Right? Okay. And uh, I guess my last question for you then would be that sort of in a world of, sort of prequels, sequels, and remakes, like how difficult is it now to get an original film made and put out there? Um, I think that. I've not had too much trouble yeah. making stuff. I mean, it's never easy, no. but it's not. I don't feel like 
that I think there's an appetite for good cinema always, you know, yeah. and for for stuff that when when the script for Free Fire went round, you know, people wanted to make the film, you know, they wanted yeah. to finance it and. And and it happened quite quickly straight after. I mean, almost it was almost back to back with right. High Rise. So from that, from my perspective, it's not too bad. I yeah. think that I think it's a tougher one in a world of where everything is asking for your attention. That is, you know, that from the incredible kind of tsunami of TV that's yeah. being pumped out and video games and everything else that we're we're, we're kind of we've got a music and, and whatnot. So that to to make something that's brand new that you then have to educate everybody about yeah that's a, a slight barrier to people going is 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 a is a bit of a risk but then i think that also culture can become a bit bland as well and and people just get sick of it after the while yeah. and want something new so and i think that it always goes in cycles like this it always has done you know the the cowboy movie went on for decades, you yeah. know. I think the superheroes thing will be the same. Yeah. Superheroes are all genre at the same time, except for they wear their pants over yeah. the top of their, <laughs> their trousers, so it's slightly different. But it's 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 kind of you know the song remains the same. Sure, Ben Whitley, thank you so much for joining us. Cheers, man. Cheers. Thank, you. thank you. Okay, so there we are. Uh, Sam Howlett talking to Ben Whitley about the new film Free Fire. Uh, and don't forget to hold on uh, as later on we will be talking to uh, Christian Munju that will be coming after the spoiler section about Free Fire so do make sure you stay tuned in for that so Lawrence Free Fire uh, we watched this the other day and I think after it finished I normally have to wait a few minutes before I feel comfortable how people feel about something but you were straight into that one I was it's that kind of film Uh, it's uh, I I think it's a, a magnificent achievement uh, and it, it's uh, it's almost like the prestige accruing to high rise and the budget, the moving budget from a field in England, uh, skywards. Uh, it's like he doesn't he's wearing the prestige lightly. He doesn't doesn't care so much. Uh, and it's all about the film. These wonderful performances, great great ensemble piece. Uh, not not a weak link in the cast. It's tight as a drum uh, and. I did say the M word, and I thought about it, and I mean it. Uh, I think it's a masterpiece of its kind. Uh, I relate that to a film like Peckinpah's Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia from 1974, which is a strange quasi-Western Mexican Gothic film, but in a way it's perfect. And I think Free Fire is perfect. So it's in terms of what it's trying to achieve, it does so? Completely. It... Even if you just leave thinking, yep, it does what it says on the tin, I think uh, Wheatley and his cohorts will be happy with that. Uh, but there's uh, a lot of other influences and um, construction and, and ideas underneath, if you want to look for that. Uh, but absolutely, it, was, um, it, it does sound um, degenerate to say you leave with a smile on your face because it's a, sh- it's a shoot 'em up uh, I don't want to say how many people die. Uh, there's a lot of shooting. Uh, it's it's, uh, but it's not nihilistic. No, I mean, it's safe to say not everyone comes out alive. Yeah, let's say that. Yeah. Uh, and so th- wh- this all begins with a very few moments outside of the warehouse, which I imagine must have been a bit of a joy to film after f- spending twelve weeks inside the warehouse. Yes, yeah, so I think it's uh, you know the lucky dip and Michael Smiley and a few others got to got to be in Boston, right? Uh, unlike everyone else who's, well, in Brighton. Could in, be an, worse. in an old newspaper building. There you go. Uh, and uh, so the, we've got uh, Killian Murphy, uh, Michael Smiley, Brie Larson uh, making some kind of deal. There, There's a bit, Michael Smiley's more of a security there. And then we get introduced to Army Hammer's Ord, who is a very slick American who's effectively the negotiator for this arms deal. If I could talk about the casting, it's the construction of the, the screenplay by um, Amy Jump and Ben Wheatley. So it works symmetrically. So you have um, two working class outliers. I've just uh, contradicted myself because it's not about class, but they're uh, ordinary Joes played by it's Sam Riley and Enzo Cilenti, mm. and I can't remember the other two. It's uh, Jack Noah Taylor and Jack Rayner. They're all fantastic. And so you've got those two pairs and then you have um, um, it's uh, Army Hammer and Shalter Copley's 
characters, yeah. and you also have Killian Murphy and Michael Smiley's characters, and it, it is a dance. I think mm. it was you said it first, Jake, that it's a dance between all these different characters, exquisitely choreographed, yeah. and it, it wears it very lightly, and it's funny. Yeah, and I think immediately when you tell someone that oh it's a gunfight set all inside a warehouse people jump to Reservoir Dogs straight away and the first big dialogue driven scene uh, between this kind of heightened character of Charlotte Copley's um, Vern uh, when they're negotiating the actual transaction of the money for the guns that moment is only its real Tarantino comparable moment I think. From what I hear Wheatley's not into explicit referentiality mm. like kind of winking over your shoulder at the audience whereas um, our friend Tarantino is is uh, known for that and, and the word postmodern is overused but I find that with so many of um, Tarantino's films like Kill Bill are about the experience of watching a film but you know you've got uh, Sergio Leone you've got all kinds of other influences coming in uh, Japanese cinema and it's there with with Wheatley's films but especially Free Fire but you don't have to go looking for it it's it's not um, uh, it's implicit, not explicit. The yeah. referentiality, and that's so you could glibly say that Tarantino's films are about himself, reflecting himself, and I think Wheatley's films are about the film. Yeah, Free Fire's about the film. There are moments where you can think of it, oh, that as a Ben Wheatley film, but as you say, the film comes first before he does. Absolutely. And so uh, this deal is done, uh, but it turns out two of the the chaps in the room have actually met each other before in a bar fight the night before. uh, And that is what springs a good 80 minutes of gunfire from that moment. And from there on out, I think I was very surprised at how bored I didn't get. I completely agree. I think it escalates marvellously. And it's carefully, as with... All the Amy Jump screenplays, sometimes co-written with Ben Wheatley or Robin Hill, uh, it's expertly mapped. So uh, the story keeps on escalating, and even in terms of locations. So am I allowed to mention the telephone, the introduction of, uh, am I allowed, the concept of, (laughs) what am I allowed? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. To do. Um, when the phone rings, that uh, raises the stakes again. And, and opens up the cinematic space. And so they've got to get to the phone, which is somewhere in this warehouse, and that's a new location. It's, mm. it's um, carefully um, pre-planned, and, and it all, you know, falls into place. And talking about planning, I've got to ask you, from, from your perspective as someone who has made films and teaches filmmaking, the actual... The, th- the thing that most astounded me is the production on this must have been the, mo- the biggest unimaginable nightmare... <laughs> I would, I would rather um, be the production designer on Barry Lyndon, right, in 1975, or I don't know what, right, with... Obviously, they had a bigger budget, even a bigger budget than Free Fire, but what a job to pull off. Mm. Incredible. And, and again, uh, going back to wearing its research lightly, the retro styling of the whole film uh, doesn't push itself into your face. You know, it's, it's um, a beautifully designed warehouse... Uh, amazingly lit by Laurie Rose all kinds of stuff going on 
but uh, you're gripped by the story in the foreground. Uh, but what a job to convert this warehouse. And it, it's almost as if what he was doing with High Rise, he thought, OK, I'm going to apply that to Free Fire. I'm going to scale it, scale it back. And um, it, it is a controlled space, mm. even if it was a, a nightmare for the production manager and art direction team. But it's a more, more controlled space than what they were doing with High Rise, I believe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, with with this, I know uh, Laurie Rose had a really, uh, well, intricate but amazing lighting system that was all hanging from the ceiling and controlled from an iPad. So if anyone moved into mm. any part of the room, rather than having to move tripods around, he could just put sli- yeah. sliders up on the this iPad and light that part of the room yeah. and move it around. So people had the freedom to go wherever they wanted. And I think there was a multi-camera set up as well. Um, but I think that would have been still too com- there must have been some restraints like you can't go there you can't move there but I think because it always, almost feels like a lot of the script stipulates where people have to be as well because there's so much hiding and the way that people deliver their lines they are to people that are far away from them as well it must have just in such a nightmare looking at storyboards and plans for this warehouse where people have to be at each time well I read in, in a piece last week that Wheatley planned it all in advance uh, using Minecraft Uh, and that's bringing together you could argue the two sides of his ability which is strategic and uh, uh, practical and on the other side his his interest in actors and his gift with actors Mm. uh, which shouldn't be um, underestimated Uh, it's just phenomenal what he's got with the cast here because we know they're good people like Brie Larson, Michael Smiley uh, Killian Murphy and and yet they're so relaxed, all of them. And that's interesting what you say about Laurie Rose. So they had the freedom to move around. He would have, I'm sure, to a certain extent, designed shots around what they were doing, you know, blocking the action, then working out um, the camera positions. But uh, he's said to be very relaxed, um, but also work very quickly, mm. at which I still can't work out how he does that. But... If you can do it, then that's Nirvana. I think when you look at his films and you think how quickly, for instance, A Field in England was actually made, he must. I think he's just really into the kind of problem-solving of filmmaking yeah. and preempting that beforehand. Yeah, good point. I think his his instinct for actors and performers comes it must come. I'm speculating from working in TV drama, well, TV comedy, so modern toss, but then um, The Wrong Door and ideal the Johnny Vegas TV comedy where you don't have any time you may do two takes maybe more uh, but what you have got is comic performers who will give you something often improvised go off script and uh, I'm sure he he took a lot from that and obviously Michael Smiley he's worked with consistently so people will give you something uh, in two three takes uh, if you cast them right uh, often often they're um, comic performers like Dan Skinner in High Rise for example and he's got a real eye for that I think and do you think there will be with this film bringing in global superstars such as Brie Larson and Army Hammer I think with High Rise Tom Hiddleston is the biggest name there but he's still very much of an English sensibility and yeah. may have not been the as hard to catch compared to Academy Award winner Brie Larson do you think that that will change the dynamic that people have with Wheatley now? Because this is clearly going to be his most American accessible film. Well, I'm very interested to see what the reception of this film is going to be because it could be just me and you (laughs) and a few others extolling its greatness and this sort of deafening silence about um, its its stature. Mm. Um, I think uh, because I am writing a lot about British cinema and uh, Andrea Arnold... Ben Wheatley and both of them recently have moved across the Atlantic in terms of where they're setting their films so American Honey or Free Fire so what are they going to do next now I've heard I'm sure you have that the next Wheatley project might be Freak Shift Mm. which he's had for a while and I don't know if that is an American uh, American film but he he surely can do that now Uh, it depends on what the reception is of this Uh, I still certainly in academia uh, and among critics detect uh, a snobbery towards his films 
uh, because they're uh, they're for an audience, and uh, I hope that Free Fire gets gets the plaudits it deserves because of its craftsmanship, mm. uh, rather than uh, being it is pulp cinema, but but it's also I mean it's it's worthy of mentioning in the same breath as um, I think Don Siegel and Robert Aldrich films from the fifties. So it's it's uh, it's you know full of energy. And you mentioned these English directors making more American films. The other person that's mentioned in in your PhD the is Paddy Constantine, whose next feature is that American thing, the boxing film as well. Exactly, and uh, I'll be interested to see what Danny Lee says about Free Fire because he writes so well about. He made a documentary about um, boxing films, the genre of the boxing film. And he probably will have a lot to say about, is it Journeyman? Is yeah. that the Paddy Considine film? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I actually think, I'm um, uh, going off topic, but Tyrannosaur, I think, is quite an American piece of filmmaking. I think it's a muscular, lean bit of screen storytelling, attributes you traditionally associate with American cinema. Uh, it's not uh, quote-unquote art house uh, filmmaking. Uh, I, think, I think it's a hybrid film of two different sensibilities wonderful film so I, I'm looking forward to the to Journeyman for sure mm. I'm excited for uh, to see what that's like just because Tyrannosaur I read was or Constantine said was edited on iMovie which uh, <laughs> and it, there's a lot of uh, potential it's very well about, edited yeah um, and people get up in arms about the things that people are making things on and I think if someone can make something like that and do it on the mo- on some nice Good free software you. yeah, yeah. Um, and so, actually, go on your PhD there, Lawrence. We might. What's um, could you give us a bit more information about like what what it is you're writing about? Yeah, it's it's early days. I teach full time. Um, this is my um, this is my big disclaimer. I teach full time um, filmmaking here at University of Kent. So, part time, I'm writing about. I'm calling it the pestilence in the ditch, unquiet landscape in contemporary British cinema, and I'm looking at chiefly the work of Andrea Arnold, Paddy Considine and Ben Wheatley. Oh, it's, uh, almost, it's almost it's what a coincidence that we were just talking about that. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, and also I want to bring in to the thesis I'll bring in a film called Catch Me Daddy by Daniel Wolf which is an extraordinary film. But really its landscape is inimical to the films, places very important to the filmmakers. And so here we go with Free Fire, it's Boston, it's a warehouse in the 1970s. So He's there's a freedom to it. I think that's one of its um, the feelings it gives you as a viewer uh, because he's he's out of his comfort zone, Ben Wheatley, and he's left um, um, Kent, Essex, the motorways of Kill List behind, uh, and it's exciting. Yeah, and I think although you mentioned the ditch there, I think there's a certain dirtiness and griminess that I think of when I think of Ben Wheatley's films. Yeah. Uh, and that is that is true of this as well. There is there's a horrible shot with Michael Smiley's hand and a needle, absolutely, um, yep. which is gruesome. And that was a little hint of oh, I remember who directed this. An accurate 1978 hypodermic, I'm sure. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, he he works he traffics in the grotesque, I think Ben Wheatley. So Kill List is a very dark film, uh, maybe his darkest, but. Um, all of the films are about death in one way or another. Uh, a Field in England is certainly about that. Uh, and arguably the alehouse they're looking for at the bottom of the field is death. Uh, and so with Free Fire, um, I mean, this is me tidying, tidily connecting it to my theories about Wheatley, which is it's it's about democracy and uh, death is the great leveller so every, everyone's equal mm. uh, and um, you know a bullet doesn't make any distinction uh, whether you're um, well born or not and so I think I think there's that stuff going on in the background of Free Fire but really you know here it is it's I mean I, if I can say also I think it is a dream of those films that were on in the 70s and 80s when someone like me was growing up which is films starring Oliver Reed, Richard Harris, Richard Burton, films like Where Eagles Dare, Hannibal Brooks, uh, which are a kind of boy's own dream of a, of a shoot-em-up, uh, and most of them desperately politically incorrect. Um, and 
somewhere, I think Ben Wheatley must have absorbed those films mm. as well as, uh, and many of them not good films, uh, some of them were, uh, and he, he's placed it here for us in Free Fire, so it's there if you want it, uh, but you don't, you don't have to get those references, but I, I think it's in the DNA of the film. Excellent. Uh, so there we are. Uh, that is Ben Wheatley's Free Fire. Do stick around for a few more minutes uh, if you want some of the spoiler uh, section. If you have seen the film already, if you haven't, what are you doing? Go out, check it out. Uh, pause us now and then come back. Uh, and if you uh, if you want to listen to the Christian Munju interview, then skip forward by about five minutes and we'll have that for you as well. Uh, so that's your spoiler warning starting now. And so... Lawrence, what did you make of the kind of third act uh, revelations? I, um, at the end, working back from the end, which yep. I like to do, yep. uh, and we can spoil it, right? We certainly can. Okay, I'm really going to spoil it. I think that it's um, the woman, uh, Justine, who who nearly gets away with the cash. I thought, there you go. It's, it's a film noir. It's, you know, the killers. It's a neo-noir all these things and I didn't see it coming so maybe that's just me did you? First time because I've seen it twice now uh, first time around I didn't uh, and then second time around because I knew there's a lot of setup. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot of neat little nods to it she says at the start I'm in it for the money yeah. isn't she so it's, it's you know Dames is no good yeah. you know it's the same as a film like Brick or The Maltese Falcon or whatever uh, yes I I think everything was the foundations were laid so clearly at the start. For example, what's going to happen between Sam Riley's character and Jack Rayner's? Um, that had to, they had to sort of die in an embrace of death. Oh, the lovers. Uh, yeah, and, and all of that, it, it delivers all of that, yet um, in a way that bizarrely seems original. I mean, all these things that mm. are, it, it's a genre film, it's a pulp film. Uh, and yet, um, if you work within within the parameters of your chosen genre you can subvert and surprise i think i think it does i think um the death of army hammer took me by surprise and i thought oh that was that was wheatley and robin hill and those guys experience making um cunning stunts which are available online in the uh, surprise moment of violence and and that kind of it, it was brilliantly done yeah um and it comes just on and a very true of his character line, just going, now I've got a great John Denver story. And also he reminded me, Army Hammer reminds me of an MA student here. <laughs> Sam, not your Sam, another Sam. So I must, I must discuss that with him. Yeah, it's the luxuriant beard. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and just how calm and cool he is. I think Army Hammer said that he made a backstory for him where he had been to Vietnam and he had seen so much more worse than this, that in this situation he could just sit back and smoke a spliff and be yeah. absolutely fine with it. I think uh, once all the um, the plates are spinning, or uh, to mix my metaphors terribly, <laughs> the wheels are set in motion. It's inexorable. So you know, fate is is coming towards these characters in the warehouse. Uh, and but I didn't feel resentful of the futility of it. The, it the, there was there was a beauty in the closure. Yeah. I thought so. Um, for example, another dance of death uh, between. Michael Smiley's character and uh, Charlotte Copley, who who is hilarious. His characters, even in this group, you know, it's preposterous. Uh, Charlotte Copley's character, yeah, yeah. Uh, he for me, he is probably the best thing in it. Uh, I do think he's he's almost like what I imagine a mafia David Brent in the seventies <laughs> would be like. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think I've got to say. For me, he's not the best thing in it because it's truly an ensemble film. And I think those other players like uh, Killian Murphy, for example, Michael Smiley, some of them are underplaying so that Sam Riley, who there's no way yeah. you can play that part and, and underplay it, the part that Sam Riley's got, yeah. this kind of pop-eyed, junky, loose cannon. Right? He makes Johnny Boy in Mean Streets look uh, stable. And uh, Shelter Copley's character has to be ridiculous. And so, but... The others around him are uh, uh, shoring him up. So it's, and I'm, I'm sure that you know Wheatley's eye as a director on the levels of his performance was was there, and he, he edits uh, so well around everyone's performances. 
Um, so it's it's generous. You know, ev- everyone gets their gets their day in court, which I yeah. think is a line from Smiley in the <laughs> film. Um, I think maybe my favourite reveal of the whole thing is when the sprinkler system turns on and you see that the factory was an umbrella factory. That's which, yeah. Exactly, which I didn't get because I've only seen it once, as to your twice. Yeah. Uh, it, it is, it's, it's full of, it's the details. So, um, for example, um, I think it's Martin is the character who, uh, that whole sequence, you could connect it to a field in England's kind of hallucinatory mm. climax uh, where he's stumbling around uh, with a bag full of money yeah. uh, and he should be dead, but why isn't he? Uh, and and that so again the grotesque and that edge of uh, sort of comedy and uh, extreme violence and and I think because of the way the film is positioned I think hopefully a lot of audiences will uh, will like it <laughs> they <Yeah>. shouldn't <laughs> I th- I think because it's disturbing but I think because because of the way it's positioned it's um, it works yeah I think it's definitely is most accessible absolutely yeah so there we are that is ben wheatley's free fire which is out in cinemas now as is christian munzu's graduation uh and so if you'd like to stay tuned in here is an interview with munzu taken at the london film festival last year as part of our in the projection booth series uh we've just just got a section of the interview here but if you would like to watch the whole thing uh then you can do so by checking out the film on curzon home cinema Christian, what was the origin of the film for you? Well, I think first of all it starts with uh, the fact that I'm a father and I spend a lot of time thinking about my children, thinking about what's best to tell your children. But uh, aside from this, uh, it's a bit of everything. I really wanted to make a film about corruption, but more about compromise and not only about corruption in Romania. I don't see this film as being so local as uh, sometimes people imagine. And I've been having quite good uh, responses from audiences all over the place, just understanding that if you speak about compromise, for example, this is not uh, localized somewhere. It's a way of behaving, a way of being in life. And I hope that, you know, at the end of the day, the film speaks about human nature a lot. It speaks about parenting. It speaks about this uh, necessity of uh, getting out the truth of your life. So I think it's very layered. And uh, I hope it speaks to people from, I don't know, a lot of places because uh, that's, that's the point with what I do. I hope that you can watch um, the story of these people on screen but think about your own life eventually. And what is the way out of this situation? Is education the solution? Well, I'm not sure that I know the way out. You, know? you just make a film, you tell a story about something that you think it's important, but... Uh, this was going on for so long that it became a habit for people to behave like this. And it's not so clear to, to see what's the way out. But the only way out is to step outside of this circle and to imagine that if you won't be giving the same kind of education to your children as the one that you got, maybe there are some chances, but you have to start by acknowledging things about yourself. Maybe you're not such a nice person as you wanted people to believe you are, especially when you reach this age. The film speaks about, um, also about this, about education and about this idea that we're always optimistical about the future based on the younger generation saying that they will save us, they will be different. But how will they be different if they are the result of our education? I'm not so sure. So I think this, this really needs a, like a very conscious effort of stopping this and of, you know, switching this to a different kind of education and eventually before everybody leaves. Is there a general struggle or difference? I'm not sure that this is too much related to communism, honestly. I think that there's always this difference in views about a lot of things and especially about ethical things in society, about from, you know, the older generation to the young generation. The only thing which is connected probably to, to communism is this habit of using compromise as a surviving tool in a way because uh, I don't know 30 years ago 50 years ago in all those countries it wasn't about having like a lot of ethical principles or whatever it was about surviving so you would do whatever it takes and people got this habit that 
because the society is not really well organized and it's still troubled, it's important to find whatever solution to just solve the problems, which was the case then. It might still be the case now, but it shouldn't be, uh, you know, as much the case. Things have evolved. You could find different solutions. If you're that displeased with the society that you see around you, you should start by doing something yourself. This is somehow the point of what the character, character tries to do in the film. But I hope he's not cynical. I think he's tired. And I think he got to this uh, moment in his life when he's disappointed. And um, I think people are disappointed because, uh, you know, you start with high hopes when you're young and eventually you can reach this moment in your life when things uh, are so different than what you imagined and you still have to live on. So that's a difficult moment and the film is the portrait of that moment. If Romeo had left Romania, do you think he'd feel differently? <laughs> Nobody can, can have an answer to this. You know, for example, I keep on talking to people of my generation. Most of them have left in the 90s. You know, people who left and emigrated someplace else, they still believe that if they stayed, maybe their life would be more meaningful. While people who stayed imagine that if they had left in the 90s, maybe they would be happier. You know, you never know. It's in the human nature to imagine that the path that you didn't take was taking you somewhere nicer. So it's difficult to say. Um, what's important is that, you know, um, we made this conscious choice in the 90s of staying. While today um, it's a bit more complicated because it's like 25 years later and you have to make this choice for the children. Actually, Elisa, he doesn't want Elisa to emigrate. He wants his children to be happy. We, we all want this. We all want us to be happy and our children to be happy. But it's just, people, it's just that people imagine at some point that um, if it's very difficult to foresee this where you live, you will just imagine that it's easier someplace else. Not necessarily because it is easier, but because you don't have all the details about this remote place. So, you know, they place all the hopes in the world on these places that they don't know very well. Yeah, like when he talks about her being chased by squirrels <coughs> in Kensington Gardens, which is this sort of fantasy. It's a very romantic view about the Western society, but it's the result of, you know, fantasizing about this for a very long period during the communist times when people were having very little information about what was happening somewhere else. And they were not only imagining that, I don't know, the world here is wealthier, but it, they were imagining it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, correctness here and people are, you know, it's, everything is based on merit. And probably it is based on merit in a greater degree than at home, but uh, it's not like, you know, this has happened. To what extent is this a personal story? Well, I, I, I wouldn't say that it's more a personal story, this one, than the ones that I did before, which were about girls as main characters. It's always something personal, but it's not autobiographical. It's not based on my life, but it's based on things that I think a lot about, as my previous films. Even, uh, I don't know, even Four Months was personal for me, or even Beyond the Hills, even... It's difficult to, to set the connection, but it's about things that I don't know, are in your mind in that period in your life. And from this, from this perspective, this one is also personal, maybe the most uh, personal film that I did, because I spend a lot of time not thinking about, I don't know, cinema in the future of the world. I, sp I think about my children. And then a lot of this thinking is in the film as well. Looking back, do you think that your previous films were thematically similar to other Romanian films of the time? Um, I think we're still, and even this film and even what happens today, it's still considered part to be of part of this movement or moment or whatever. But um, this is not uh, a movement based on a, like a, I don't know, a statement of any kind. So it's just a way of um, finding a name for what happened with the Romanian films in the last 10, 15 years, which was quite unexpected. And at the end, yes, I think there are some, some similarities, but mostly about um, the style, mostly about the way of doing, mostly about these um, principles of avoiding like big subjects and going to minimal things and getting inspiration rather from reality than from cinema and doing stories which happen in a very short while in the film. Yes, maybe this is uh, in part similar, but at the same time, if you go a little bit deeper into this current, you see that 
There are as many differences between these directors, and uh, I think this is good that they're not respecting a kind of a formal aesthetical manifest. It's just uh, they feel that they belong to this group of people which started working more or less at the same age at the same time. It's the new generation of Romanian directors who didn't make films before the revolution. We started all after the year 2000, which was a very bad year for the Romanian cinema, the first time when we couldn't produce any film. And then all of a sudden it was this, I don't know, this group of people which emerged. And I think that probably um, all of us um, did this kind of cinema as a reaction at the same time to what was happening before, which was very, very different. So I think it's mostly, mostly a reaction against something than uh, driven from, uh, I don't know, the history of the Romanian cinema. Has your voice as a filmmaker changed over the years? Um, uh, I think that for the last two or three films, um, it's the direction, the direction is still pretty clear. It's just that every time the film, sh the, the story shapes the film a lot. So people notice some differences, but they come from the story. They don't come from um, the director's decision to go into a different direction. I think that my view about, this, about cinema is the same for the last, I don't know, five, eight years, ten years, and for the films that I do. It's only that, you know, there are these small differences about what interests you at a certain point in your life, and this will be reflected from the story and the style that you, that you use. How did winning the Palme d'Or affect your career? Um, I think they became easier in the sense that, of course, it, it was easier to finance the films, but honestly, I didn't have this problem even before. I managed to finance my own films up to four months without too many problems. Uh, it also came with some pressure, of course, because if you set the level so high from the beginning, people will just have expectations, so it's not that easy. But at the same time, I think this happens to every director. You are uh, judged, considered what you did before, so I shouldn't be complaining. It's, it's great for me that all of a sudden this placed me in this, uh, I don't know, in the view. I was in the spotlight because of the, the popularity of this, of this award, because of the Cannes Film Festival, because of the Palm Door. So there is a lot of curiosity about what I do, which stays every time for every new film that I, I make. So I think I was lucky. There we are, Christian Munju on his new film, Graduation, and that is available on Curzon Home Cinema now. And he has also curated a special collection of films available on Curzon Home Cinema. Uh, so do make sure you go on there and check those out too. And uh, another recommendation on the Home Cinema service this week comes from Lawrence. I would like to recommend A Field in England, which is Ben Wheatley's fourth film, came out in 2013 and was released across Film 4, uh, Channel 4, kind of multi-platform pioneering way of releasing it. And it's, it's what I believe he called a midnight movie, uh, which is something that uh, you watch in the middle of the night and aren't sure, did you see that? What's, what's going <laughs> on? Uh, and I loved it. And it is divisive because it's uh, elliptical and doesn't offer easy answers it's about uh, a small group of um of soldiers in the english civil war my second favorite war after the 30 years war the same century but i digress um and they're in a field uh and they have to find some treasure under the spell of a necromancer played by michael smiley uh and really it is about it works as an analysis of the british class system in that richard glover gives a beautiful performance as this character called friend who um uh, is just sort of worm's eye view of the world. Reese Shearsmith is terrific as uh, a kind of would-be academic astronomer. Uh, there's only, I think, four or five characters, uh, beautifully written by Amy Jump, uh, and they have to go to work for the necromancer. And I'm really not selling this very well, but it's it's shot in black and white, amazing widescreen black and white uh, cinematography by Laurie Rose. And um, I just think it's 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 been sold as a hallucinogenic trip mm. into the past which it is and uh likened to 2001 in its climactic um edit frenzy yeah when uh, the main characters are hallucinating there yeah there is what has become iconic in the rope scene yeah 
uh, which is um, Smiley's character, who's called O'Neill, uh, casts a spell on Reese Shearsmith's character, and uh, you hear this screaming going on inside the the magician's tent, and then Reese Shearsmith exits the tent with a rope around his midriff, uh, with this appalling expression on his face, and uh, I don't know how it was written in the screenplay, but you believe he's seen into the bowels of hell, uh, and it is terrifying. The music, by the way, same sound designer as Free Fire, Martin Pavey, incredible soundscape that he creates, and Jim Williams' music, which is sort of folk electronica, and uh, anyway, it, it's um, it's an art house film that's also uncategorizable, and it's really uh, in line from a film like Performance uh, or bad timing those Nick Rogue films from the late 60s early 70s and uh, I love it brilliant uh, there we are that's Field in England so do make sure you check that out on Curzon Home Cinema now as well uh, and that's all we've got time for so thank you as usual to CSR for letting us use their studio and thank you to Lawrence Jackson for joining us this week thank you very much Jake uh, and until next week uh, it's uh, it's goodbye see you next time bye bye <laughs>